Um, all right, the uh, closing song we'll do a cappella at the end. It's going to be hymn 343, Amazing Grace. So if you want to write that down or find a find your spot. 343. And if you want to find your spot in Acts 23, starting verse 12, we're going to cover the rest of the chapter um, because it's all one event that takes place. So while you're finding your place there, let me just say this. In the Bible, we see God work in two different kinds of ways. As we've studied through the book of Acts, we've seen, especially in the first half of the book, that God was left and right doing the miraculous. So God works in the miraculous. Um, He performs miracles to confirm the gospel message we talked about in the first part of the book of Acts. The apostles were proclaiming the gospel, and he did miracles through them to confirm that message. Um, He was... Working, we can see other places in the Old Testament and into the New Testament where he works in the miraculous. We could see it at Pentecost with the apostles when they were speaking in tongues. Um, They were communicating the gospel to all the nations that way. We see in other places in Acts where he's driving out demons or he's healing people through the apostles. Uh, People were raised from the dead and angels opened prison doors and freed God's servants. So those are some places in Acts. But that's, doing the miraculous is par for the course with God. We see that a lot in Scripture. If we look at the Old Testament, we can see that what's happening in Acts is just a continuation of what he was doing in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he delivered people from the fiery furnace or people from the lion's den. He created the flood to exact judgment on the wicked. He destroyed whole armies with a handful of troops. He took a shepherd boy and used a sling to take down a giant that was a master warrior. He formed babies in the wombs of barren women, and he formed a baby in the womb of a virgin. And so God frequently works in the miraculous, that we, the stuff we see in Scripture that, that it, we would call miracles. But the other way that God works in Scripture is through providence. Because he's sovereign over all of his creation, he's in control of all of history and the events that take place that lead to his desired end. He stirs the mind and the spirit of man to do his will. He coordinates details so that his prophetic word comes to pass. And he works all things for his glory as he redeems the people for himself. So, he works miracles, and he works through providence. Uh, John MacArthur distinguishes the two this way. A miracle is God violating the natural world to invade it supernaturally. Providence is God supernaturally using the natural to accomplish his will. Let me read that again. A miracle is God violating the natural world to invade it supernaturally. Providence is God supernaturally using the natural to accomplish his will. In our text today, 
um, we see a demonstration of God's providence in the life of Paul to fulfill a promise that he made to Paul in verse 11. So our text actually starts in 12, but we're going to read, we're going to start in 11 so that we get that promise again. Um, So if you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word from Acts 23. All right, so verse 11, here is the promise. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now our text for today. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we've killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you are going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, we have bound, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they've killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea, At the third hour of the night, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. The next section I'm going to skip over. He writes a letter to Felix, basically just telling him everything that we've covered so far, all the events that happened. And then in verse 31, it picks up. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. All right, let's pray. God, um, there's a lot that goes on in this text, but there's also a lot of things that we see you working through providence to take care of Paul here and to fulfill this promise. Let it be an encouragement to us to know that you are always working out the details um, for your glory and for our good, for blessing our lives. Um, And Paul was in chains at this time, but we're able to see that you were doing this for his good too and that he would then advance the gospel in new ways. So help us to remember that um, and be encouraged by the scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat.
All right, so, <coughs> excuse me. I don't have any, all the points are up here, but I don't have anything underneath the points. <coughs> excuse me. Uh, because the main things I want you to take notes on are the, are the points. But I left space in there so that you can take notes on anything that you hear that you might want to remember. Um, so we're going to look at five things that God is doing to providentially fulfill this promise for Paul. The first thing in verses 12 to 16 we see is that God positioned Paul's nephew to learn of the murder plot. <clears throat> God positioned Paul's nephew to learn of the murder plot. So as we look at this text, who was involved in this murder plot? There were two groups of people that were involved. There were the Jews, who were most likely the Jews from the temple uprising, who were most likely the Jews from Asia Minor that were there for the festival, and perhaps specifically from Ephesus, which that's all stuff that we've covered in the text leading up to the, this text today. Um, there's a good chance it's the people in Ephesus went... Remember when Paul was in Ephesus, there was a big uprising. They wanted to kill him. They were talked out of it. He escaped their grasp. Um, there's, there's good evidence that points to them being the people who are now in Jerusalem for the festival and getting an opportunity to maybe exact the revenge on Paul they wanted. So the, there are a group of Jews who have taken the vow to not eat or drink until they kill Paul. There's also the Sanhedrin that's involved in this. And I, I would say likely the Sadducees are the ones that they talk to. Because you remember, the Sanhedrin was divided. When Paul said, I'm here because I'm on trial because of the, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, the Pharisees, who also believe in the resurrection of the dead, split down the, they split down the middle, and the Pharisees supported Paul and were arguing with the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So the last thing that has happened which was just the day before was that the Sanhedrin was divided and some of them were were actually saying maybe Paul actually maybe an angel or a spirit actually came and revealed this to him so my guess is the Jews that wanted to kill him went to it says the chief priest and the elders my guess is they went to people who were part of the Sadducee group and said if you look at the text if you look at their words they say um, in verse 14 where they meet with the chief priests and the elders, we've strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we've killed Paul. Now look at 15. Now, now therefore you along with the council, that's an important phrase, along with the council, give notice that basically... Tell the Tribune that you want to bring him to, you want him to bring Paul in because you want to question him some more. You want to get some more details about what's been going on and why all this stuff has happened. Since the Pharisees had last left the group supporting Paul, I doubt they would have gotten support from the Pharisees. But if they go to people of the Sanhedrin and say, here's our plan. Now go tell the rest of the group that you're going to call Paul in to be questioned more then they can go along with that. And so the Sanhedrin is involved, some of them knowingly, and some of them um, are ignorant of the fact that they're trying to kill him. But 
here's Luke's point. There are 40 men bent on killing Paul, and now they're in cahoots with the Sanhedrin, even the chief priest. I think it's ironic that the people, these Jews who wanted to kill him, they knew that the highest court among the Jewish people was so corrupt that they could reveal their details and their plans for a murder plot. And not only they wouldn't get in trouble for that, but that they would also have the support of the highest court. So they were so corrupt that, this, that it didn't even phase them to, that they could go and they, they could work together with them to get Paul out of their lives. So they make this vow, and this vow is most likely what we see in the Old Testament. Uh, This was kind of a typical vow that people would make. They would say something like this, May God do to us, or more also, if we do not fill in the blank. In this case, may God do unto us if we eat or drink before we kill Paul. Which sounds extreme, and I've always thought, like, when you make a vow like that, what happens if it doesn't work out? Because it didn't hear, so it's not going to eat, and now Paul's out of sight. And um, But what we learn, if you, um, if you know anything about not, not uh, Jewish practice in, that we see in Scripture, but what we see in the Mishnah, which was the which was the instruction of the, for the priests, what we see in that is that a priest could cancel a vow for someone if they were not able to fulfill it. So it doesn't seem to me like it's that much of a vow. If, if I know that I can just have my vow canceled if I can't fulfill it, then I'd make all kinds of bold claims. Like, I mean, so to say... We're not going to eat or drink until, we, in, until Paul's dead. That's not much of a vow when you know you can just go and have the priest absolve it. So they make this vow. They make this plan. They take it to the Sanhedrin. And somehow, and here's where God's providence comes in in this part of it. Somehow, Paul's got a nephew that overhears this. Now, I've got lots of questions about this, and they're all questions that I can't really answer. There's no way for us to really know. Lots of questions about his nephew and Paul's sister. Like, were they followers of Christ? Or were they devout Jews? Um, Or were they neither? Um, You know, if they were devout Jews, I could see them not caring what happened to Paul because Paul abandoned that's what they think. The Jews thought that Paul abandoned his heritage. Uh, were they from Cilicia and just in the city for the festival, or did they live in Jerusalem? Why would his nephew being a, be in a place where he could overhear the plot to kill Paul? And that one makes me wonder, was his nephew perhaps training to be a rabbi? like his uncle. So maybe he was training to be a rabbi and was in the group of people or in the building and was, you know, maybe he was around the corner and he overheard him talking. I also w- would like to know how young he was because 
um, God gives him, God, the Holy Spirit stirs him to go tell people, and Paul sends him to the Roman Tribune, who's like the big number one commander. And I'm thinking if I'm just a teenage boy training to be a rabbi, that would be pretty intimidating. So I'm also curious, like, he says he's young. We don't know how young he is. But those are all questions that we don't really know the answer to. Whatever the reason, though, whatever, whatever the reason that he was in a place where he was able to hear this, God made sure that he was there. God was working providentially to make sure that somebody who was on Paul's side would hear this so that he could then, by the Holy Spirit's prompting, go tell someone, go, go let someone know what's going on. And so God positioned Paul's nephew to learn of the murder plot. The second thing he does, <clears throat> God prompted the Roman commander to favor Paul. Verses 17 to 22, God prompted the Roman commander to favor Paul. So we see <clears throat> two, actually, ways that he is favored. One is Roman favor. So it's worth noting, I think, if you haven't already recognized this, that the Romans seem, the Roman soldiers, um, the people who are have some kind of authority in Rome, the Romans seem to treat Paul with greater respect than Paul's own people do. They treat Paul and they treat Paul's family, in this case Paul's nephew, with, with great respect. They show favor to them. And somebody might say, well, but Paul's a Roman citizen, and uh, we, learned, we learned in our text today that the Roman tribune, his name is Claudius Lysias. That's, we didn't read that because that's in the letter, but he, he's writing to Felix. He tells who it's from, Claudius Lysias. Someone might say, Paul's a Roman citizen, and Claudius doesn't want to get in trouble. So, you know, is that God showing Paul, is that God making him show Paul favor? And I would say yes. God has positioned Paul in, or, or put him in, under the care of somebody whose best interest is to take care of Paul and to treat him well. And so God stirs Roman favor by those in authority for Paul. But there's also, we see God pouring out his favor on Paul here. Now, if you think about all the events that lead up to this point, Paul came off of a, his third missionary journey, traveled back to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to, that there was hardship and persecution wait, awaiting him in Jerusalem. So he's on his third missionary journey. Everywhere Paul goes, he faces persecution. He, he's run out of town. He's beaten. He's, at times in, in his trips, he's arrested. Um, all, just all kinds of persecution everywhere he goes. He gets to Jerusalem, and in the time that he was in Jerusalem, which is, from the time he arrives in Jerusalem to our text today is not very long. It's only two or three days. In the short period of time, there have been three riots, and Paul's at the center of all three of them. He's not the cause of them, but he's at the center of them. 
And so he comes off of a missionary journey where he's suffering persecution at almost every stop. He gets to Jerusalem among his own people, and now there have been riots, and they've tried to beat him, and they've tried to put him to death. And so Paul has to be tired by this point. I don't, I don't know, because I'm not Paul, but I know what it's like to be a human, and I know what it's like to travel and be worn out, and I know what it's like to face opposition, and it wears you down. I think Paul was probably at a point where he needed a break from the spiritual battle or the physical battle or both because he had so much of it for the months leading up to this. God tells us in Matthew, this is, these are the words of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, he tells us that God knows what we need before we ask him for it. And I would say God knows before we even realize we know we need it. God knows our every need. And I think Paul needed a place to be where he got a break from this. And what we're going to see is that this favor that God is pouring on him here by getting him out of the hands of the Jews and into the care of Claudius. We're going to see that the rest, every step of the way from here to the end of our text today is God doing that for him, giving him a chance to rest and a break from the battle. So God prompted the Roman commander to favor Paul. The third thing we see that God does to work providentially to fulfill this promise to Paul that he will get to Rome God protected Paul, verses 23 and 24. God protected Paul, and he did it by doing two things. He changed two things. First thing he changed was his location. Claudius learns of the murder plot. He very gently deals with Paul's nephew. It actually says he took him by the hand, which I think was probably a way to calm him asked him, what is it that's, that I need to know about? So he learns of the murder plot, and the very first thing Claudius does is he commands his soldiers to gear up and get ready to go. They, first of all, they leave, the ESV says the third hour of the night, other translations translate it into our timing so that we don't have to do the mental work. That's 9 p.m. Nobody in biblical times got ready for a 60-mile journey at 9 o'clock at night. You just didn't do it. You didn't have lit roads. You didn't have the security of daylight to protect from bandits on the road. Nobody did that. And you can't move that quickly by foot. So you don't plan sixty mile, a 60-mile journey and leave that late at night. But God stirs in him the need to move Paul quickly and he uses the cover of night to protect him. Now, he also calls 470 soldiers to go with him, which seems a little extreme. We got one prisoner, and you're going to put almost 500 soldiers on him to make sure that he's safe as you travel. Um, you've got You've got guys that are 
foot soldiers, you've got guys that are uh, cavalry riding on horses, and you've got spearmen. Um, some of them may have been also doubling as like carrying provisions and that kind of stuff, but you still, I don't think you need 470 soldiers to guard one man. But God um, called or stirred in Claudius the need to protect this man. And so what we see in terms of God's providence here is we see Rome falling in line with what God is doing. Rome is, he is working in their hearts and their minds, and Rome is doing exactly what God wants to protect Paul from this ambush. He moves him late at night. He moves him under protection of almost 500 soldiers. And so he protects him by changing his location. He also changes his guard. He gets him out of underneath Claudius, who is stationed in Jerusalem, and he moves him under the protection of somebody who's got an even higher authority. Verses 25 to 30 is that, that is the letter that Claudius writes to Governor Felix in Caesarea. So he basically fills Felix in on the events that have taken place, and then he states in the letter, he says this, that he was sending Paul to Felix for Paul's protection. And so God protects Paul by changing his location and changing the one, the authority that is over him. The important part about the location is that Caesarea is no longer Jewish territory. It's now into Roman territory. Number four, God planned a fair trial for Paul. God planned a fair trial for Paul, verses 31 to 35. We are not, Paul's not going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem. And so God <clears throat> puts him in a place where he will get a fair trial. They take him first, there's a halfway point. They stop at this city, and I have no idea how you pronounce this, Antipatris, Antipatris, something. But that city was rebuilt at one point by Herod the Great and named after his father, after Herod the Great's father, um, Antipater. Um, It became a military post, and it was located about 30 miles outside of Jerusalem. So it was a halfway point at a point where they could stop and do do whatever necessary to plan the rest, the uh, the second half of the trip. Um, What we find out is that some of the soldiers continue with Paul from that point and some go back because Claudius has to have He has to have somebody in Jerusalem with him. Um, But it's about 30 miles. Then they go another 28 to 30 miles from there to Caesarea. But God moved Paul before the Jews could fulfill their plot to assassinate him under the cover of night, protected by 470 soldiers, 60 miles away. Now he's under the care of Felix and he will be given a fair trial. So God providentially coordinates all of those details to safely move him, not just move him away from Jerusalem, but to safely move him 60 miles closer to Rome. The promise was, you will get to Rome to testify for me. And Caesarea was on the way to Rome. So he's now 60 miles closer to the destination and God fulfilling that promise from verse 11. 
<clears throat> All right, number five comes from verse 35. God provided Paul with a comfortable stay. He provided Paul with a comfortable stay. Verse 35, Felix says that he is to be housed in Herod's Praetorium. Now, Herod's Praetorium, when Herod the Great was king, he had this palace in Caesarea built for himself. And <clears throat> if you remember, Herod, was, Herod the Great, that's Herod who was king when Jesus was born. He was known in history as being a master builder. I doubt he had built anything himself, but he planned magnificent, not just buildings and structures, but even cities. And so history has recognized the brilliance of Herod in terms of planning and building of things. So Herod had this palace built for himself in Caesarea. Caesarea is right on the water. So it was probably like his own beach resort. Um, it was glamorous. Now, the Herods are no longer in power. Governor Felix, R Rome has taken over and said, we are going to run this place. Governor Felix is the governor over Judea, and he's stationed in Caesarea, and he lives, his house is now Herod's palace or Herod's praetorium. So when Governor Felix gets Paul, he commands that Paul be guarded in his own home. So Paul's getting to live in the beach resort that houses the Roman governor who at one time that at one time housed Herod the Great. I don't know how much freedom he had. I don't know if they kept him in chains or what, but he at least is safe and he's in a comfortable place to, to live for the however long it takes for them to arrive and for him to go on trial. He's in a safe and comfortable place to be getting a break from the life of persecution. So God continues to provide for Paul in the governor's mansion. And... Again, we don't know how long he's there, but it's at least a place that's comfortable to stay. And so God providentially works all this stuff out, all five of those things. He works it out from the beginning with Paul's nephew being in the right place at the right time to all of the Roman authority listening to Paul and believing the nephew and taking the necessary steps to protect him, to get him to Felix so that he can have a fair trial, and even down to the fine details of you're not going to stay in a cell, you're going to stay in the home of the governor. So that's what we see in terms of God's providence in the life of Paul in our text today. We don't see God doing the miraculous. In fact, I don't know if you noticed this, but God's not even mentioned in this text. So we don't, we don't see him, we don't see Luke attributing any of this stuff to Paul or to God. We don't see God's name mentioned at all. We don't see miracles taking place. But what we do see is that God makes a promise to Paul 
And God makes sure that all the details work out so that that promise can be fulfilled. That's one of the things that you see in all throughout Scripture. And I think if we took a hard look at our life, we would be able to see God coordinating all the details of our life from the beginning to now to providentially be working out his will so that we are where we need to be, so that we're growing in the way that we need to be growing, so that he can fulfill his promises that he has made to us. He's a master choreographer. That's what Paul calls God in Philippians chapter 1. He calls him a choreographer. He's a master choreographer who's putting all of the people who are part of the play or part of the show in the right places. He's coordinating all those details, moving people to where he wants them to be to accomplish what he desires. So his promise to Paul is that he would testify in Rome and God is not going to allow people who want to thwart that plan to be successful like the Jews who wanted to kill him. And I hope that's encouragement for you today because you and I can count on God to keep his promises. We read them. Sometimes I think we read them and we just keep moving on and we don't think about that's a promise that God has made to me in his word. Sometimes I think we read them and we wonder if he really will do it. But God promises and never fails to keep his promise. In fact, uh, Corey Tim Boom one time said, God delights in us when we trust or actually count on him keeping his promises. Because his promises are not made in vain. He never promises something and never brings it to pass. So I hope that's encouragement for you today to know that God is coordinating all the details of your life to make sure that his promises are kept, that his will is fulfilled so that we can count on him to strategically choreograph our lives to not only fulfill his purpose, but to also give us the hope we have in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that even though your name is not mentioned in this text, that we see your handiwork all over it. We can see you coordinating details. We can see you stirring people to do your will. And so in this life, which can be hard, and sometimes we want to see big things that prove that you're there, that prove that you haven't abandoned us, that prove that you're working. I pray that you'd help us to rather than look for those things to be fine-tuning our our perception to be able to see what you're doing providentially behind the scenes. Because the truth is you work providentially as much as, but maybe even more than, you do the miraculous. So when we need to be encouraged, let us see what you're doing behind the scenes. When we need to encourage other people, let us be able to see that in their lives so that we can help them to see that. And let us be encouraged to know that you never leave our side, that you always work out your will 
that your will is for our good and that ultimately your will is for your glory. And let that give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen.